Well, we're going to begin a new series today called Reform, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant uh, Reformation. And so as Pastor Steve kicks things off, I'm going to read our scripture for us. Our scriptures, which you can grab out of the Bible in front of you, or maybe the Bible that, that you um, have with you is from Isaiah 43, verses 16 to 21. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you the one that's just sitting right in front of you in the pew. You could take that home with you. Isaiah 43, 16 to 21. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Eric. You know, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Yes, this is the day. You know, I heard Pastor Eric say that last week already we have over 152,000 commitments made to our missions program here at Friends Church. And I heard... Yeah, how about, yeah, 152,000. Thank you. The good news is a couple people, several people have come up to me and said we were missing or sick or something last week. And knowing who they are, I expect that number to triple. So (laughs) no pressure on you. No pressure at all. (laughs) But yeah, today is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I hope you're rejoicing in what God is doing in your life uh, this uh, this week and looking forward to this series on reform. I would... One thing before we get started, would everybody just eyes on me for a second? Eyes on me, okay? Now, here's the deal. The next time I see you look down, I'm going to assume you're checking the Brown score. (laughs) So, if you look down, the pastor's going to assume you're checking the Brown score. So, I only ask you this, could you signal it to me, you know? (laughs) No, no. No, no, no. I'm going to play the role of a prophet here for a second. Um, They're going to lose. So I'm either a false prophet or I am a true prophet. We will find out later, right? We will find out later. Uh, So welcome. Yeah, we're starting this series. In fact, today and over the next month, we will be thinking about reform. And it really is based on this this reformation that took place 500 years years ago, where God reached down and did a work amongst his people and really changed the world, and especially the Christian world, um, forever. And so we want to remember that, and we want to draw out from that what still is true today, what impacts us today, and how we may be reformed ourselves, changed 
made new, or transformed is the word that we like to use. Um, but before we look at 500 years ago, I thought it would be good to look about 2,000, 2,200 years before that. A prophet by the name of Isaiah, a mouthpiece of God to his people. Isaiah was, like all the prophets, put in some difficult tasks of telling people many times bad news. In fact, 2,200 years before this Reformation, he was charged with telling and foretelling the, the people of Judah of the consequences of rebellion. What was going to happen to their nation? What was going to happen to the people because of their rebellion, of their turning from God? And he does that throughout the scripture, and he talks about how they're going to be, their, 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 their nation's going to be conquered, how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and how they are going to be carried away in captivity. But also, the role of a prophet is to tell the good news. And he says, after this, after this prediction of what's going to happen, and it did happen a couple hundred years later, he reads and says what Pastor Eric read this morning in chapter 43. And it's Isaiah, who is a mouthpiece of the Lord, speaking what God says. And we see that very clearly. It says this in verse, verses 16 and 17. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and there they lay, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. This scripture, this verse is obviously pointing back to the time that we know as the Exodus, when God's people were led out of Egypt by Moses and came to a barrier, a problem, a significant problem. It was, it was the sea that was preventing them from going forward. And you remember Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And we hear this story here that, in, that God made a way through the sea. And not only did he make a way, but he, he drew out the Egyptians that were following the Pharaoh's army. And they followed, but God caused the waters to come back together and they were snuffed out like a wick. And this, this verse tells us that. Now there's a if you're reading the verse that we're reading, the version that we're reading here, the New International Version, this is kind of an unfortunate translation. If you have the English Standard Version, the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, or even the King James Version, it uses a little different language that actually I think is, is more appropriate. When we read this, it says, he made a way. But hopefully, or maybe your version said, God makes a way. King James Version says, he maketh a way. And then here, here it says, he drew out. But some of those other versions say, he brought, he brings forth. The King James says, he bringeth forth. You see, this statement that God is making is not that I, just that I am a God who did, but I'm a God who does. This, this verse is a statement about who God is. He says, I am a God who makes a way. It's present tense. I am the God who bringeth forth. 
It's, it's what I do. It's who I am. And he reminds the people in this period of captivity that they're going to be in, in, in this period of Jerusalem being pretty much destroyed, I'm a God who makes a way, and I am a God who brings forth. This was so important for them to hear. This is just not history. This is today. He was the God of the Exodus, and he's still going about his business of restoring his people, of bringing salvation to his people. God will not stop. And he goes on then in verses 18 and 19. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. He says, forget those things of the past. Reflect on them. Be thankful for them. But don't be bound or don't be let you box God in into the way he's done it in the past. God makes a way. And he makes a way the way that he wants to make a way or the way that he will make a way. We limit God when we say, well, you did it this way in the past. And he says, no, I, I have a new thing that I'm going to do. I got a new thing. I love that. He's, I, I get a feeling God is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. He says, I am doing a new thing. The message for his people is I am doing a new thing. He says, you know, I could, yes, I could make a way through the water, but if I can make a way through the water, I can certainly make a way through the desert. And I can provide for you, and I can take care of you. And that's the day to look forward to. I got to admit, I struggled with this part of the sermon because I kept stopping and going through my mind was that if you're my age or maybe a little younger, the DC talk song, New Thang, <laughs> who's doing it? God's doing it. Who is doing a new thing? <laughs> you know? God is doing it. Who's doing it? God is doing a new thing. It kept going through my mind. I went down the hallway. I told Gus, I can't get the song out of my mind. And he says, well, I've heard it. If you go and listen to the whole song all the way through, it leaves your head. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. But as I was listening to it, I was refreshed in my mind about the words of this first verse and thinking, hey, that's some pretty good theology. I'm not going to try to wrap it like they do, but it goes something like this. My God is doing a brand new thing. Thing. My God is doing a brand new thing. But since time began, he remains the same. Faithful forever to his word and solid, a cornerstone unstirred. But look down through the ages and you will find God doesn't change, but he knows the time. From harp to piano and song to rap, you know, God with us so we cannot lack. You know, it's, it's this thing of God doing a new thing, but a God who does not change. A God who is faithful to his word, but yet works in the time slot that, that's presented to him. God, God is faithful. He does not change, but he works in the times of, of the Egyptians, and he works through the times of the Babylonians, and he works through the times of the Romans, and he works in those times to those peoples in ways that speaks to them and calls them out. God has done that time after time after time. He makes a way where there is no way. And Isaiah here says, God is up to something. 
God is up to something. In fact, later, just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 46, verse 10, he says this, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. I will accomplish my purpose. I will get done what needs to get done. And God moves. God does a new thing. God's not a one-trick pony. Just because he did it one way before doesn't mean that's the only way God could move. He's not limited. He's not boxed in. God says, I'm going to do a new thing. A new thing. God is doing a new thing. And so we see through history, and then history recorded in the Bible, that God did do a thing. He did a work among his people, and he did it through people who maybe we would call the rebuilders. The rebuilders. Men like Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel. And he gave them this vision of rebuilding Jerusalem. And they went home and they, they rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt them spiritually. And God did a new thing in the lives of those people. After that, just a little more than 500 years later, God did another new thing. Hebrews Chapter 1 says it this way. It's the way I, I learned it out of the King James Version. God, who in sundry times and diverse manners spake through our father, to our fathers through the prophets. Basically what that says is God in different times and different ways spoke through prophets. Then it says this, but in these last days has spoken to us through his son. He says Jesus Christ is the new thing that God was doing. The son whom he hath appointed heir over all things, by whom he has made the worlds. And then Jesus Christ came and did a new thing. And then as he was leaving, you might remember as we were talking not long ago about the, the being full of the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to do a new thing. He says, it's time for me to leave. And, and things are going to change around here. It's time for a new thing. And he says, so I'm going to send you this Holy Spirit who's going to come, and he's going to be your comforter, your counselor, and we are, you're going to be my witnesses into all the earth. And so God does a new thing again. And so we recorded through Scripture God doing a new thing. Come 1,500 years later, I believe God said, it's time to do a new thing. It's time to do a new thing as, as he looked down and he saw a church that was dark. He saw a Christians who were being led astray. And he saw sin ruling and teaching perverted. And so that's really where we were in the late 1400s. If you remember your history, we're coming out of a period called the Middle Ages. When I grew up going to school, it was called the Dark Ages. A lot of it was. It was the Dark Ages. We've kind of gotten away from that term because it's felt like it isn't real respectful of some of the, the, the men and women who were, who, who were during that time. But it was a time of darkness in the church. It was a time of darkness for Christianity. As I think about that darkness, I thought about Psalm 119, 105. It says this, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. 
but through 1,500 years of corruption, of ignorance, that light had been significantly extinguished. I think it's like this candle here. It's what Isaiah said, snuffed out like a wick. The word of God was not transforming lives. The word of God was not available. In fact, put yourselves, if you could, in the shoes of a, of a, of a Christian 500 years ago. 500 years ago, if you are a Christian, first of all, there's probably no Bible around. The, just over 500 years before that, the, was the, was no printing press. About 1450, 1440, 1460, the printing press got functioning. So by, any Bibles were handwritten and likely not available. You were told, probably you were a Christian, based on where you lived. It was based on the, the, the ruling authorities. And if you lived in a Christian territory, you were told you're Christian. If you lived in an Islamic territory, you would be Islamic, and, or, or however that would be. But you were told you were a Christian. There was not a lot of difference between the state and the, and the, and the government or the, or the church. They were pretty much one and the same at times. And so it was a cultural thing. So you were told you're a Christian. You didn't have a Bible. And in fact, the only Bibles that were out there if they were available, were written in Latin. The church said it has to be in Latin because they were afraid if the Bible got into the hands of the people, it would be dangerous. In fact, it was heresy to claim that the, that the, the masses should have the Bible because of how they might interpret it and what they might do with it. And the even worse news was, even if it wasn't in a, your language, there's a good chance you were illiterate <laughs> and you couldn't read anyhow. So how do you function as a Christian? How do you function in the 15th, 14th centuries before this if, if, the, if, the, if you don't have the word, if you're being told you're a Christian, if you're a Christian because your parents were a Christian or because the governor is a Christian or because, because the bishop has told you that you are Christian, you will, and then you have no scripture. Well, if you were here last week, you might say, hey, faith cometh by hearing. Right? And how can I hear unless someone preaches? Unfortunately, even the preaching was corrupted. The, the church was in a state of, of chaos. At one point, there was two popes. At another point, there were three popes. There was, there was so much division, and there was so much false teaching in the church that, that there just was not a chance for you to hear a gospel. There was really not a chance to hear how you could be saved. And if, and if the people can't understand how to be saved, isn't it time for God to do something? Isn't it time for God to step in and say, we got to do a new thing here? And so God steps in, and he, he does it like he did before. Before he did it with the rebuilders, now he's doing it with a group called the reformers. And that's really what we're going to be talking about over these next weeks. In the beginning, God was working even before the beginning of the Reformation. God was working even centuries before the beginning of the Reformation. There are men that we call the pre-reformers that started to, that started to stir in their hearts what God may do. Men 
like John Wycliffe, Erasmus, and John Huss. John Wycliffe was deemed a heretic because he felt like the Bible should be, he was committed that the Bible should be translated into English. And he was charged as being a heretic by the church. Erasmus, he was the first person to publish, because of the printing press, the Bible in Greek. And he had to fight the church because it was, it was heretical that the Bible would be available to everyone. And the printing press did that. John Huss. John Huss in 1401 became a Bohemian priest. But he began to challenge the church on the authority of scriptures, reforming the clergy. He began to preach justification by faith and and against the indulgences, which we'll talk about in a second, that were used to finance war. In 1415, John Huss was burned at the stake for his beliefs. God is preparing a new thing. So then along came the one man that history says is basically responsible for the Reformation. And it was a, a little-known German monk by the name of Martin Luther. You've probably heard of that name. Luther was teaching in Wittenberg, Germany. And he was a man who was, who was um, smart, brilliant, in fact, in his studies of the Scripture. A man also, like many of the Reformers, was given to um, humanness also. These men weren't perfect. They were a lot like you and I at times. We have failures. And in fact, um, Luther was known as being abrupt, disrespectful, and even crude in some of his talking at times. He was known to have significant bouts of depression. And at the end of his life, or near the end of his life, wrote some really very disturbing and, and, and things that, about Jews and against the Jews that the Lutheran church would later have to repudiate. So we know they're not perfect. But in his study, in his, 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 his reading of the word of God, he began to get a hero by the name of John Huss. And he said, yes, there are some things that I find incredibly important that the people know, including that the Bible be in the hands of everybody. That you be able to read God's word. There were other things, the corruption. But the, the other thing that kind of led to the October 31st, 2000, or 15, 17, um, beginning unofficially, of the Reformation was this thing called indulgences. And if you're not from a Catholic background, you're, you might be saying, what in the world is an indulgence? Well, an indulgence basically is a, is, a, um, is a grant by the church or the pope of a release from suffering for your sins or paying the penalty. And so it would either reduce the penalty of, of your sin or it, would, or it would eliminate the penalty. Now, this is not salvation supposed to be, but it is, it is the, the suffering that we incur just because we've sinned prior to entering into glory. And, and so they would say this could, this could reduce your suffering today if you had to pay penance. An indulgence could reduce your penance that you had to pay. 
or it could reduce your time in, or pain in purgatory, which they believed was a time between, between death and, and entering into the presence of Christ. And so, and so there, was this, there was this indulgence. But, but this indulgence, which was granted by the church, became a way of raising money, became a way of building buildings like St. Peter's Cathedral. In fact, there was one priest who was in, who was in um, Luther's area. His name was, um, forget his name, John Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, he, who, would, who was out there selling these indulgences so much so that people would come to Luther with their certificate saying, I have paid for my salvation. I have paid for my salvation. Believing that they were going to heaven, that they were saved because they had put enough money into the church. In fact, there was a saying back then, and this might have been what, what blew the lid. It was as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so you could actually, to raise money for the buildings, they would actually say, give money and your grandma, your grandpa, or somebody that you love in purgatory will be released from purgatory. They will quit suffering. And so people were giving money and turning their money in. That drove Luther over the edge. And in the day we remember today is October 31st, 1517. He went to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And tradition says he nailed to the door his 95 thesis, 95 statements for discussion. We have up here this morning, those, this, this is Latin, but if, so if you want to come up and read them, the English is on this side. <laughs> we have the Latin and the English, because they were in Latin, the door would have been much bigger, the, the postings would have been much bigger and were much bigger. But this is a representative, representation of those, of those 95 topics for discussion. Many of them, most of them, were in some way regarding the indulgences. And they were, they, were, they were saying, basically, if you boil it down, there's nothing about indulgences in this book. But if you didn't know this book, if you had never read this book, if the only teaching you'd been heard was by people who were saying, give me money or, or earn your indulgences, how would you know? How would you know? And so Martin Luther began this, this call for discussion. In fact, at the top of this, it reads this. Out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology, and ordinary lecture therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute on them in that place. Therefore, he asks that those who cannot present and dispute with him orally shall do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. What Luther didn't expect was that he would gain a following very quickly. And they would copy these theses, and they would take them and have them printed. And the printing press got these 95 theses out everywhere. And then as Luther would write, his, they would take his teachings and they would print them and get them out everywhere. And all of a sudden, there was a spark of God doing a new thing. Of God reaching out to those who were walking in darkness. 
and saying, I have light. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And the word of God was once again available. It wasn't just Luther. There were others, many, many others that joined him, named and unnamed. Here are a few that you might recognize names. William Tyndale, John Knox, John Calvin, Heydrich Zwingli. Uh, <clears throat> Tyndale was martyred in England simply because he was attempting to, tr again, translate the Bible into English. John Knox was a British theologian, along with Henry VIII, significant to bringing the Reformation to England. John Calvin, a French theologian who took the word and the, the, the teachings and the, the thoughts of, of, of Luther and the reformers into France. And then, of course, there was Heinrich Zwingli who was from Switzerland and took the Reformation there. But we have others that went to Scotland and the Netherlands and others, other reformers, many, many others that, that took upon themselves at risk of martyrdom to say, we believe the word of God should be in the hands of everybody. But it wasn't just that. In fact, over in the 20th century, the Reformation, the thoughts have been, have been boiled down into five key um, understandings of what we call the five solas of the Reformation. They are these. And these are the five points that we will cover over these weeks. Today, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. Scripture alone is our final authority. Scripture alone is how God's word is spoken through us, not through tradition, although we look to tradition to help us understand the word. Not through, not through the church and its hierarchy, although we look to those who studied scripture. And we say, you know, we're not the first ones to read this. Tell us what you know. Tell us what you understand. Help me understand this. But the final authority is Scripture. Over the next few weeks, we're talking about faith alone, sola fide. Grace alone, sola gracia. Through Christ alone, solus Christus. And then soli de gloria, for the God, glory of God only. These Five calls of the Reformation. Now, if you were walking down the streets in 1517, you didn't hear people calling out, hey, five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide. These are, these are terms that we've come up with really in the 20th century that boil down what the Reformation is all about. And today, as we look at this, the thing that the Reformation is about is about that God's word has authority above anything else. God's Word is not a rule book as far as, as or, a, or a cookbook. You know, if you want to learn how to cook brownies, you don't know, go to God's Word. If you want to know how to, but you know what? If, if it says, if in your recipe of brownies, it says, if you run out of flour, go to the store and shoplift. <laughs> then you refer to God's Word. And you say, that is opposed to God's Word. And that's how the God, Word of God functions. The Word of God is our final authority. The final authority will say, no, don't do that. You know, if, if you're preparing a tax return, which I've done many years, there's, there's an authority. There's an authority. It's the, it's the tax authority. And, and if we say, well, I can ignore that tax authority. I don't have to follow the laws of the land. I can cheat on my taxes. 
The Bible is a higher authority. And the Bible says, no, you can't. You don't take from Caesar what is Caesar's. You're honest. You have integrity. You're someone who can be trusted with your word. And so we have this word of God that speaks to us. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have been convinced of because you know from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is God-breathed. It comes comes directly from him. But yet God's word has only the authority because it comes from the author. God's word has authority because God has given it authority. God has the ultimate authority. And so as as we live out our lives, we turn to this word. And here we are 1,500 years later, or 500 years later, and we have this book available everywhere, don't we? (laughs) I went into Lifeway Bookstore the other day. I'm I'm looking for a specific Bible uh, for a specific purpose, and and I haven't been able to find it, but I started going through this row after row after row after row after row of Bibles. There's some people here today that are trying to convince me on your phone right now you're looking at the Bible instead of the Brown score, right? <laughs> because it's available, it's available in our pocket. But yet, we don't give it ultimate authority in our lives. People in the 15th century, 1500s, the 16th century would have given anything, anything to have this book. To have the light that comes and allows us to see what God is saying. The rest of what we talk about these next four weeks, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus, soli deo gloria, are all based on the authority of this book. Of this book. This book that has been written over thousands of years by many different authors, written in time, in culture, to various people, but yet through it flows a consistent truth of God and who he is and his love for you and his desire to bring us all into relationship with him. This book that lays out the penalty for our sin. And the prescription through Jesus Christ. Who, although maybe not gives a list of rules, like you can't go to, you know, say, well, you know, the rules for this, and you go to it and find it and find ten rules. But it gives us the principles of which to live out a holy life, a life that pleases God. It's there. It might not tell you how to find a spouse, but it gives you some very good principles on what it is to live together in unity with someone who, is, who, is, who has the same values, the same, the same beliefs, the same God as you have. The Bible is there for us, and so many times it's neglected. I love what Luther said. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me, 
It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. It's only going to do that if we pick it up, dig into it, and together read, understand, comprehend, follow the guidance, the teachings that we have here. Because God has a plan, and God says in Isaiah 46, I'm going to accomplish my work. God is going to go about doing what he has to do. And he's going to use people that he needs to do and he needs to work with. 500 years ago, it was Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and others. In the last two, 300 years, it's been men like Jonathan Edwards, John and Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, George Fox, George Whitfield, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham. That God is saying at times, I need to do a new thing. I believe God, too, wants to do a new thing in our lives. It's not just with, with nations. It's not with denominations. But it's in our life. Sometimes I think God's saying, it's time to do a new thing. How do you know if it's God? How do you know if this new thing is from God? Ah. Does it correspond? Does it agree? Is it, in, is it, is it in, in conformity with his scripture? We've been given it. God's up to something. It's interesting. The, the Reformation really got kicked off and the fire burning because of the invention of the, of, the, of, the, of the printing press. So much of this was able to go out and people out in the streets, in their homes, could read what was going on. They could read Luther. They could read the other reformers. They could maybe even get a copy of the scripture in their own language. One of Luther's greatest accomplishments was translating the Bible into German so the people could read it in their own language. And God calls us out to take his word seriously, to read it, to apply it, and to let it change us. In fact, the last verse that Verses that Pastor Eric read out of that Isaiah passage. Isaiah 43, 20 and 21 says this. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. I will praise his name. I was created. You were created to praise our God. And if God has to do a new thing to call us to that, I say, Lord, do it. Lord, do it. Don't wait for me. Don't wait for us. Do your work. But as we found out, maybe God's already working in your life. Maybe he's been working over the last weeks and months. Listen to him. Check it out in the Word and be obedient to what he's calling. Let's stand together.
Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the work that has been done down through the ages, through men like Nehemiah and Ezra, Zerubbabel, through men like Peter and James and John and Matthew, Paul and Barnabas and Silas, Timothy. Lord, for those who over the period of 15, 2,000 years have stood faithful and have allowed you to do a new thing. Lord, help us not to waste the new thing that was done 500 years ago. Help us to value your word. Help us to treasure it. And help us actually to, to feel like Luther. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. May your word lay hold of us this morning as we go. May it be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. As we witness for you this week, as we share, and as we be your people where you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Go serve the Lord this, this week in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ.